Hello, Australia. Welcome to episode six of the Layback Podcast. I'm Jackson Allen, and for those of you joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about Australian climbers and their stories. A quick update from me. I know I've been slow on the episode uptake lately. I apologize. In my defense, I have a full-time job and, you know, a family and I have to work that around the podcast and I do like to get out and climb a bit myself as well. It's a privilege actually to be able to sit down with these climbers and ask them questions and hear their stories and capture it for the podcast and each episode gets a lot of love and care and it's a bit of a slow process. So, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to get as many out as I can but there might be little lulls every now and again when kind of life happens. In this episode, I sit down in Natamuk with Olivia Page, freelance photographer, climber, uh, bootstrapping adventurer, and an ambassador for Arcteryx. Olivia has been shooting adventure, travel, and conservation photography for over a decade. We cover her stories from helicopter hunting in New Zealand uh, to dirtbagging in the Arapiles, sailing around Asia, Federation Peak in Tasmania in the winter, Yosemite, and this all-female expedition to attempt a first mountain peak traverse and first mountain ascent in the remote north of Fjordland in New Zealand. Actually, Olivia is always doing crazy different things and in the four months leading up to this interview, I'd be calling her and every time I'd speak to her, she would be or, or message her, she'd be doing something different uh, or working on some other project in this crazy life of hers. Olivia is really passionate about getting more women outside and into trad and she's pushing many different avenues to make that happen. I'd recommend heading over to thelayback.com where I've shared links to Olivia's website and the various projects that she's been a part of. And she's also provided some really great photos that I've overlaid on the video of this interview, which you can watch over on YouTube when you'll find links to that YouTube video on thelayback.com. Anyway, enough from me. Strap in. Let's get into it. So um so let's let's start with climbing. How did yeah. you uh, how did you get into it? Um climbing originally I didn't know what climbing was and I think I was in high school and my friend Sandy mentioned climbing and I was like, "Oh, you know what? I think that's something I'd like to get into." But I didn't really know what it was. I just liked the sound of it. And um then he continued on to tell me that he used to do competitions, competition climbing in uh primary school. And was like, "Well, let's let's go after um school one day and we'll just go to the climbing gym and um he had his license already so we drove to the climbing gym none of what none of hard rock and i think yeah we hired the shoes and the harnesses and i did one climb and i was like yeah this is it you know i just had this feeling that climbing even though i didn't know what it was i was like yeah i think that's gonna be me and then i did it and then we climbed for the whole afternoon and then went to i think anaconda and went and bought shoes and harness that day like straight away yeah straight away i was like i found my thing so yeah yeah why do you think you were in a position where that just happened like what, what were the prerequisites do you think Honestly, to, to you liking climbing from that first experience from that experience mm. um i think i tried a few other things um like surfing and snowboarding and i did enjoy the outdoors um but there was just something about climbing where i think it combined 
everything like mentally and physically it combined those two things and it felt safe but I was also scared and it just it just brought everything together into one activity and um I guess I didn't know much about outdoor climbing at that point but I could see straight away that there was a lot of um different ways you could climb you know I I, you know I'd heard a little bit that you know you could you could go bouldering or I'd sort of heard about big walls and you know mountaineering and it just seemed like a lot of scope to kind of get into the sport and then find something even more um, interesting in there you know like you can really choose your like own adventure with climbing it doesn't have to be one thing like there's so many different sides to climbing and what sort of climbing were you doing at the time I think I was yeah I started trad climbing from the beginning and then sport climbing kind of I could see it existed or I'd see people get on sport climbs but trad climbing I thought was actually the main type of climbing I sort of when I then was exposed to more sport climbing I thought that was a really weird thing you know I thought it was weird to put bolts into a rock and then you're just clipping quick draws and I just sort of felt like it was quite strange because I'd been introduced to a rack and building anchors and all this stuff so that was my normal idea of climbing. And so that was around the time you uh, you finished high school and did you go into study then or? After high school, I'd sort of gone to climbing and that kind of got put aside to go and do a bit of study. So yeah. I did uh, uh, photography at RMIT, yeah. applied photography, at the time when uh, we still hadn't transitioned to digital. So we were shooting film okay. and developing everything. So it was a pretty funny time to be uh, doing that course because we were the last group that actually used film. The next year they ripped out a whole bunch of dark rooms and everyone transitioned to digital. digital so it was a really... So. What what attracted you to photography in the first place? Um, I think I still remember my stepdad's got, he's collected just about every National Geographic from, I don't know, the 60s, whatever. So he's got this huge cabinet in the shed and it has every single um, edition. And um, I just remember flicking through those as a, as a younger girl and just loving it, you know, yeah. just just experiencing the world through images that you know going to places that I'll never go to or seeing people I'll never see or you know you look at a photograph of a water on country and you're like well I'm probably never going to see that and you just you get to step into someone else's shoes and just those images like the photography's always been incredible in the National Geographic um, and I think that that really caught me and um, then I think my stepdad gave me a little Nikon FE and I was I don't know, 11 maybe. Mm. And um, I just ran around like they have a farm and I just run around and go on my adventures for hours and just photographing, you know, mushrooms and the mist and animals and, you know, getting lost in the little forest in the back. And yeah, so for me, it was, I think, always the adventure that came with the photography. So photography was more like that, that means of capturing the story or the, the like the, the, pictures into this world and yeah. you wanted to go and see those other worlds or? yeah it's sort of photography for me has been a good excuse to go and do and see a whole bunch of things that I might not normally do mm. so like um you know you can go traveling but I feel really weird if I travel without a camera or if I go climbing without a camera and I have at times done those things without a camera but I think when you've got a camera in your hands and you're trying to capture a place or a person 
you're far more tuned in. Mm. You're not just sort of wandering around. You're, you're really looking and you're really trying to, you're looking at the colors and you're looking at the shapes and you're looking at the light and you're just mm. really looking at a scene. And so if you've got a camera, I just think for me, I get to experience like a deeper sort of scene. Yeah. Where you are. Yeah. yeah. And during that course, I think you mentioned to me that, that um, you didn't really like the serious side of photography yeah. or what you saw as a serious side of photography. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a TAFE course and it, it gears yeah. you towards, you know, getting out there and working and mm. gears you to work in the industry. And, you know, going back to looking at those images of uh, in the National Geographics of travel and different cultures, for me, I just couldn't translate that to what, you know, what they were sort of pitching to me you know like mm. I wasn't ready to go and work in the industry and just and be a professional photographer and photograph commercial projects it just had it held little meaning to me mm. it's like why you know I get it money making but money's never ever been a draw card for me mm. to this day like you can if I don't want to do it you know you can give me two million dollars and I'm like nah like you know so for me when I was in there I was like well I don't care about making money out of this I just want mm. to shoot well and learn mm. all that I can so yeah I did not start working as a photographer straight away yeah what'd you do I um went and partied <laughs> 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 I went and uh, did a couple of ski seasons so I went to Wanaka New Zealand and mm. then uh Falls Creek I want to oh can't remember which one came first and um, just went snowboarding and, and having a really good time. Yeah. Yeah, a bit of surfing. Yeah. A bit of surfing yeah. as well. Yeah, went around Australia and surfed a lot. And, yeah. Okay. So place that in, in time for me. Like what, what year is that Ooh, around? Um, my life hasn't um, gone in a very straight line. So I actually no. forget when I've done things. It's yeah. all a bit of a blur. Um, well, let's let, we can we can flit yeah. it back and forth and slowly piece the yeah, picture okay. together over time. But at, in 2011, um, yeah. you you created a coffee book about uh, deer hunting in Fjordland in in New Zealand. Okay, so I'd put the camera down after RMIT, yeah. and then thought I'll just go snowboarding and doing all these other things and travel. And um, I'd done this ski season, did a snowboarding season in Wanaka, and. Photography was always there in the back of my mind. Um, mm. It never left me. I just, you know, wasn't interested for a while. And anyway, I was working in this little pizza shop um, as my my night job so I could snowboard during the day. And one day this scruffy old man walked in. Like he looked like kind of this overweight sailor with this jump, this woolen jumper with holes everywhere and his hair's like <laughs> sideways and he looked mad. But he knew the owner of the restaurant I worked for. And he said, oh, and he said this to my myself and um, the girl I was working with, Marion, this French girl. He said, oh, if you girls, you know, I'm a pilot. If you ever want to come down to Fjordland or Tiana, I'll take you deer hunting from my helicopter. We thought he was nuts. Anyway, we finished our little ski season and we went for like a two-week kind of tour around the South Island, got in our car. We ended up in Tiana and we had this phone number that he left us. And we're like, are we going to call this crazy man and like stuff it? We'll call the crazy guy. His name was Dick Deeker. We called him and um, he ended up being probably one of the best helicopter pilots that New Zealand's ever made. He's kind of an absolute legend over there. So even though he looked like an absolute disheveled mess, he was the king of kings of, you know, helicopter uh, venison recovery. So we did go deer hunting from the helicopter um, with him. And 
Marion, my friend, um, she she was into uh, filmmaking already mm. and she ended up staying longer and making a film about the venison recovery over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but being in that environment, that sparked my interest again to go and get a camera and to come back and document what we were doing. So I had a little point and shoot thing and I was mm. like, I've got to get a proper camera and actually document what's going on here. And so you get back into photography at this point and, uh, and you're taking photos from helicopters. That's a little bit different. Um, yeah, so sort of. So I left yeah. New Zealand at that point and I actually went back home to Australia and left okay. Marion there. She shot this great film and I went home and I worked and I saved money and bought this camera. And then I went back, I think a couple of years later, yeah. to uh yeah shoot a book on it so a publisher contacted me and said hey you know if you can get a chance to photograph the industry and to write about it and interview all the guys i thought it'd be great and i was like i have no idea if this is possible i was 24 25 so mm-hmm. super young um it's not really the kind of gig that especially a female at that age would get like it was super weird and i'd be you know talking to these 60 year old men you know going hey can i take photos of you and they're like who the hell are you <laughs> Um, but it did work out and I met the right people and mm. we did make a book out of it. So it was super left field. And yeah. one of the reasons they did let me to go and photograph them is because I was light. So for them to make money, they need to pick up the, the deer carcasses and hook them on and bring them back. <laughs> and the reason they took me is because I didn't weigh much and they're like, okay, well, you're only half a deer worth, so we're not going to lose too much money. Because there's a lot of big guys that want to get in there and, you know, photograph mm. this stuff and they're like, nah, you're going to cost us money. So it was simple as that, really. <laughs> um, and so uh, I want to talk about another adventure uh, that, that you found yourself on that's probably a, a completely different tangent again. Mm. And that was at, at some point you sailed through Asia for uh, for six months on a yacht yeah. or something. T- tell us about that. Another random thing. Um, so... Yeah, so out of the – once I published the helicopter uh, deer hunting book, um, I then sent it out for review to a bunch of magazines and there was a magazine called Wild Deer Hunting Adventures, I believe, um, that picked it up and went, oh, cool, we'll review review your book. And then they hired me as an editor, which was another really weird job I did because I was editing a deer hunting magazine. I'm not into hunting, by the way, like – I think it's probably the most sustainable way to get meat, but I'm not really into hunting. Anyway, I did that for a while and it got to the point where I was quite sick of it and I'm looking at dead animals all the time and I needed a break. And so I randomly was like, well, I've never been sailing. I think maybe I'll try that next. And originally I wanted to go from Australia to New Zealand or New Zealand to Australia. And I found this random boat that was going that way. And at the time, the guy was like, well, I don't have room for you. I've already got crew, um, but you can come and sail uh, from Broome and through Indonesia for three months if you like. Um, and I just said yes, which was kind of nuts because I'd never sailed before. <laughs> had had so, you been on, like, did you know whether or not you got seasick um, or did you have any, any experience on the sea? I'd sailed once in New Zealand for maybe like 20 minutes or something. <laughs> like, I had no idea. I just was like, I need to do something different. Um, so yeah. And lucky I didn't get on the New Zealand trip because, uh, the rudder broke, like the actual rudder. And so they had to hand, like they had to, 
I can't remember exactly what happened, but they had to like get some ropes and like hand move the rudder to steer the boat the entire time. And they were in an insane storm and they videoed it and they were like surfing down these huge waves. So I had of I'd been on that trip, I probably would have never sailed again. Um, so yeah, I did end up going on this crazy three month trip that ended up being about five, six months. And I did take clip, uh, quick draws with me on that trip and climbing shoes and a harness because my end point was to climb in Tonsai, which never happened. <laughs> why, 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 why didn't that happen? What yeah, happened? Yeah. So this um, sailing trip, we stopped in a lot of remote, remote places. So yeah. we'd go to bigger cities, but you know, when you're in a boat, you can drop anchor anywhere. Yeah. So I don't know what I got sick with, but I got very, very sick towards the end of that trip yeah, and yeah. ended up, um, I did end up getting to Tonsai, but by that stage I was very sick with some kind of bug or virus or who knows what. And um, yeah, then I was in hospital for a couple of weeks and got home and I was pretty sort of weak and unwell for about a couple of years after that. So that A couple of years? Yeah, like my stomach, um, I couldn't eat anything for a really long time, like proper. So it took a long time to recover and a long time to get strength back and a long time to rebuild muscle and all that stuff. So, but I did, I did go to Arapalese after that. After that? Yeah. Okay. So like yeah. when you were feeling better, you were like, okay, time to hitch you um, to Arapalese? It wasn't that soon after, but yeah, I think it was like, you know, within a few months of yeah. coming home, I was unwell, but I mean, I was still functioning, you know. That was like a time when you went to Arapalese. That's that you, you just, you weren't working and you just kind of like dirtbagged in Arapalese yeah, for a while. Yeah, that's when I went for a stint of four months. Four and months. just went, because I, I still, because I didn't get to climb in Tonsai, mm. I still wanted to pursue that. And yeah, I wasn't working. I had nothing on. So I just was like, okay, let's go to Arapalese, set up a tent. And there was no time scale. Yeah. So just, just go. And we ended up staying for four months and staying through the summer, which is pretty insane. So, yeah, because it gets quite hot. Gets really hot. The summer at yeah. Arapiles. Yeah. And what's the lifestyle like in, in Arapiles like these days? I mean, it's you're in the pines, right? Mm. And it's a very kind of mythical place to do that kind of stint. Yeah. Um, a lot of stories over time yeah. in Australian climbing about that. Like when you would have done it, what, 2012, 2013 or some point? Somewhere there. Somewhere around there. What was it, what was it like? What do you think it was like now versus maybe what it was like in the 90s or, you know? Look, it's still pretty much, I think, the same, yeah. like very similar. Um, it's probably a little bit busier. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're all experiencing that. Um, look, I think it's all, you know, the banter's the same, mm. sitting around the camp's the same, yeah. drinking drinking five coffees in the morning and starting at 11 o'clock is still the same, you yeah. know. Yeah, I think Arafli's hasn't changed much and it's a, quite a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it will change a bit, but I think it's generally got the same. It's a very similar vibe. I mean, you've got people that started climbing there 40 years ago, still climbing there, and they go there every year because it's a Rapalese and it hasn't changed that much. Mm. You know, it's it's sort of this little secret pocket in the world. That's not that secret, but, you know. How did your climbing go? Like, what, how did kind of being four months of just focusing on that go? Yeah, um... It went well until we started drinking way too much tea and coffee in the mornings and then kind of not even climbing at all, which is when you should leave. When you start drinking more tea than climbing, yeah. that's when it's like it's time to leave Arapiles. Um 
but yeah, I just did a ton of probably more easier climbing, actually. Yeah. Lots of long multi-pitches, you know, extreme picnicking, Yeah. you know, all the classics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got, it's summer as yeah. well. So you've got the longest days ever. You can climb so much. You can climb into the afternoon, in the night. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a really good summer. So, yeah. No, yeah. no. Fair enough. Um, and and what uh, what caused you to leave Arapiles in the end? You kind of mentioned that it seemed like you were drinking more coffee than you were climbing or tea. Yeah. By that stage, um, I think I'd met Simon Bischoff. Okay. Who then, my path changed completely after I met Simon. Um, he, I can't remember when I was there, but... It, had, it was after I had, the book was published and some of my photos were in there, like the, the, the guiding book. And I wasn't taking many photos, but he was like, well, why aren't you combining photography and climbing? Like, that's all you're doing. Like, mm. that's all you want to do. And I guess I'd never really thought of it. Even though I'd taken a few photos for the guide, it was more of like, oh, this is fun. I'm combining these things. But he was like, well, why aren't you doing that all the time? Like, you know, but it had never dawned on me that I could mm. combine them. Mm. So that year was um, when that idea was actually put into my mind and I caught on to it and went, oh, yeah, you're right. Why am I not doing this? And how did you, what steps did you take to pursue it after that? I hung out with Simon. <laughs> he was like, come on some rad trips with me and yeah. bring your camera and see what you come up with. Okay. And what so, was the first rad trip? So the first one would have been, um, yeah, Flinders Island. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... I don't know a lot about Flinders Island. Tell me, where is Flinders Island? It's a tiny island above Tassie. Okay. And it's about 700 residents, I think. Oh, it's like actually populated. It's populated. Okay. Um, it has quite a big indigenous population, I think. Okay. Um, it's a pretty wild place. Lots of snakes, lots of animals running around, you yeah. know, like the animals own the place. Um, beautiful how you, beaches. How do you get there? Is it just kind of like... You can either catch a flight, okay. a little tiny plane, a little rattly plane, or you can do what we did. Mm. Um, we got on the little ferry, which is usually used sort of for the locals or mm. um, to transport livestock or supplies or whatever. It's not a nice ferry. Um, yeah, so you get on this thing and it has to go out on the tide, so you have to wait. And sometimes it doesn't go out because it's not quite right. And, um, you know, you get on there and I don't know if I should be saying this, but, you know, the captain is um, possibly smoking something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's confidence inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, well, there was a storm coming in and there was four of us and, you know, you, you put your car on there basically. It's it's a good way of getting all the gear on there. You get the, you get the car on there. And, yeah. Um, yeah, you're just rocking and swaying for hours in amongst hay bales and all this stuff. And you go down the bottom and it kind of smells like a pub and urine because, like, the toilet's splishing and splashing everywhere and you sort of lay on the ground trying to get some sleep and it's pretty brutal trip over to Flinders Island. Do you think people should probably take the plane if they're going there for like they a should nice probably take leisurely the plane. climbing trip? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and hire a car. Yeah. yeah. But okay. um, if you do want to get your car over, that's the only way to get your yeah. car over. Yeah. What, so. what sort of climbing is? Um, so there's granite. Yeah. Um, so we went to Streslecki. Um, okay. There's a few routes up there. So okay. it almost feels like alpine climbing. Like Flinders Island is beautiful blue water, um, granite boulders with orange lichen. It's sort of quite tropical-ish. But then you've got like this alpine climbing on Streslecki. Um, it gets really misty. Yeah. Um, and then you've got 
rocks, like Kilcranky's kind of more orangey, pinky rock, sort of similar to Rapley's, but not mm. quite. Um, pretty amazing. You've got the beach to look at the whole time, you know, ocean mm. views. So it's a special place. Yeah. Super special. Yeah. And you took some, um, some kind of standout photos there, as I understand. Yeah. So... I'd sort of decided to just say yes to whatever Simon said because he (laughs) he seemed to go on really good adventures. And I was like, you know what? I think I do want to combine photography and and climbing and and trips and adventures. Mm. Yeah, we ended up, (laughs) we were driving along in the car and he had binoculars and we screeched to a halt and we all get out and Simon's like, there, that's what I want to climb. And we get the binoculars out and we're looking and there's like this big cliff and then this huge like boulder kind of coming over with this huge splitter crack crack running up it and he was like yeah let's go there let's walk there and so there's no track you know and we're bush bashing and like we went there the next day with full packs and everything and you know we'd stepped over a million snakes like I think I stepped over there was one section where it was kind of like a video game we had to like jump over the snake and I think there were like you know seven snakes in the space of like six meters and you're kind of like do I keep jumping are there going to be more or should I turn back or you know it was pretty nuts and you know like like going up these slabs that are almost vertical and you know you don't want to slip and we did end up getting to that crack we found it and um that year Simon did try and climb it he ended up aiding through it yeah okay um but yeah I happened to be in the right spot with my camera and the light was amazing and I got this shot that ended up getting into um rock and ice and it was pretty awesome it was it made me kind of go ah okay you have to go outside of the box and on pretty nuts adventures to get these photos you Mm. know you can't Rapley's is great but it just it made it clear that you've kind of got to go a little bit further and go do something a little bit crazier and that's where those images are so one other thing that I understand happened on that trip was that you um you got a, like a jack jumper sting yeah and you went into anaphylactic shock yeah yep yep good times yeah that um that summer I developed a allergic reaction to jack jumpers and um the reason being is that I grew up on a farm and every year when we were blueberry picking, I'd get bitten by the same nest of jack jumpers, but I didn't know that there were jack jumpers and that if you get bitten lots and lots of times, you get really allergic. Like anyone? Uh, not anyone. You probably need to be, I don't probably not anyone. Yeah. Okay. But I got bitten a lot and I'd just be like, oh yeah, okay, well that's, you know, I'll just, I'll just be tough and whatever. It's an yeah, ant okay. bite. Um, so before the Flinders trip, I'd had two episodes where um, yeah, I was bitten, had to go to hospital and got dealt with there. And then I went to Flinders Island and I didn't realize that Tassie and Flinders Island have a ridiculous amount of jack jumpers. We'd spent almost, you know, two weeks there and I hadn't been bitten. I knew they were around. And um, this was towards the end of the trip. We'd sort of climbed everything we'd wanted to climb. And we had this big party on the beach. There was only three of us left. And we sort of spent the whole night up, you know, Mm. swimming in phosphorescent water and looking at the stars and just having a nice old party. And in the morning, we're like, trottle off to bed, you know. And as I got into my tent, I was like, oh, I feel really weird. And it's not because I'm tired or that I've been up all night. I feel like something's wrong. And then Simon found a bite on my shoulder and he was like, yeah, I think you've been bitten. And at this stage, I didn't take my allergies seriously. And I didn't know where my EpiPens were and I just kind of had chucked them in a bag. We found them and, um, you know, we're all tired and we've had a big night. 
and I had two with me and Simon used the first one and the needle snapped like it kind of bent and then by this stage I'm passing out and I remember just handing him the EpiPen going you've got to like just read the instructions (laughs) and work it out and I did I completely passed out um apparently had a fit or something I don't I don't remember and Simon had managed to use the other one and then carried me up these sand dunes and got me into the car. And then I think we were driving at like, I remember looking at the speedo. I think we were going somewhere between like 130, 160 k's an hour on this really bad road, trying to get to this tiny little hospital in Flinders Island, which is just a house, looks like a little house. And yeah, I kind of got there in time and it was, yeah, pretty annoying. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's a, a yeah. minor inconvenience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, are you allergic to any other things apart no. from jack jumpers? So it's just jack yes. jumpers. Okay. So do you have to now pick places where there are no jack jumpers? Yeah, yeah. Okay. and it sucks. It yeah. sucks. Um, it's definitely stopped me from doing a whole bunch of trips I want to do, especially by myself. Yeah, I can't just go for a bushwalk by myself. I can't go and do really simple things. Like yeah. you don't think about it until you're in the situation. Mm. I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna go walk this way through the Grampians oh, maybe I should tell someone and maybe I should bring EpiPen. So it has stopped my lifestyle in a way. Mm. But um, at the same time, like I love, you know, going to places like New Zealand and I do find other places where I can do the things I want to do. So it's Mm. slightly limiting. Arapiles has got no jack jumpers. Uh, It is, yeah. Paradise. Paradise. So like I want to go back to Flinders really badly, but Mm. it's something that I'll have to, you know, something I have to think about if I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And you have yeah. to take EpiPens with you. Yeah. 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 And I, today actually I learned how uh, my friends did a wilderness first aid course and taught me that you can get four more doses out of an EpiPen. So I feel pretty good now. EpiPens are expensive. Are they? They're expensive. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So but if you can squeeze more out of one EpiPen, then. You yeah, know. yeah. 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 If you can get five doses out of one. Great. I just, yeah, it's going to be good. (laughs) But I mean, it's not as simple as just jam it in, right? And okay, all good. I can go back about my day. No, that's the most annoying thing. Like, I don't care if I get bitten, um, whatever, that's fine. You deal with it. But it's that you need to make sure that your body's dealing with allergies. So you've got to Mm. take antihistamines and some steroids and you've got to wait and make sure that the allergy doesn't come back up. So what's annoying is that usually you have to go and sit in hospital for a few hours and they monitor you. So it's it's annoying. It's a like mm. really annoying mm. allergy. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of gets in the way of, gets of in the way. doing adventures and so yeah. forth. Yeah. yeah. And so you when you're at Flinders Island, that idea of adventure mm. and, and taking photos and climbing and combining it all kind of took off yeah. for you. You what what happened after that? Like what was the next adventure after Flinders um, Island? Flew home. Yeah. Um, edited some photos together. Um, I wrote an article about it that was published, I think, like a year or two later. So those things take a lot of time. Yeah. Um, and then I actually ended up working a bit. So I ended up working in helicopters again. Okay. Um, so I was in New South Wales photographing power poles. <laughs> um, so after the Black Saturday bushfires, the government stepped in and went well. A lot of them were um, caused by faulty uh, power lines. Oh, okay. And so companies now you know like essential energy those kind of companies have to go around and they have to go and figure out how many poles they actually own and in what condition they are so yeah. i went around and photographed them for a few weeks anyway i was doing that and i received a phone call from simon bishop 
And he was like, oh, we need another videographer for this thing we're doing in Federation Peak in winter. Um, what experience do you have in bushwalking? Like, have you filmed? What, you know, what have you done? And all my answers were like, no, I've not done an overnight hike. No, I don't know how to film. No, I have no experience in camping in snow. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, but you'll be fine. You'll be fine. You should do it anyway. <laughs> but... You know, he did say, look, call me back and think about it. So that was the next adventure. What did that trip entail? Like when you were actually assessing it, am I yeah, going to go? Yeah, yeah. So I, I went online and Googled Federation Peak. I had no idea what it was. Um, so Federation Peak is in southwest Tassie. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful peak. It's got um, Australia Australia's tallest vertical climb on it, um, Blade Ridge going into the northwest face. Anyway, these guys wanted to film a winter ascent of of federation peak i'd googled it and there was some article about a woman who just a few weeks earlier had fallen off um trying to bushwalk up federation peak it's not really a bushwalk up there it's kind of a scramble and some people use ropes but um yeah i looked at that and went wow someone died trying to get up there like a few months ago what am i doing so you know it it's like it's only a 20 kilometer walk in mm. but it's bush bashing crawling on hands and knees walking in mud up to your waist or higher um there's no track really like there is but there isn't um leeches it's super tangly vegetated cold wet rivers yeah not not a bushwalk no not a normal bushwalk but it sounded appealing to you no well i decided i was gonna say yes to everything okay it was more that, yeah, I was just like, I'm going to say yes to any great ideas and Simon Bishop has fun ideas, so I'll say yes. And then you just It was more that just me saying yes. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and what, I mean, what were you hoping to get out of it going into it? Um, I think the same thing that I got out of Flinders Island, mm. um, just learning to be more self-sufficient, to be in remote places, mm. learn new skills, confidence. Mm. Um, yeah, and I just, Flinders Island proved to me that to get good images, you have to go just that little bit step further, you know, mm. a little bit further. Okay, and yeah. you were kind of pushing. How did the ex- expedition actually go? Was it yeah, successful? It or? was successful in the end. Mm. Um, so Simon Bishop and Andy did make a film out mm-hmm. of it. Um, Andy was sort of the brainchild behind the idea and then mm. Simon filmed it. Um, it went super well. It was supposed to be a 12-day mission, which ended up being a 17-day mission. So we did have to ration food in the end. It was What caused it to drag out? Um, we got no climbing days. Well, it just rained. <laughs> it just rained the entire time. So, you know, like to be honest, it was probably the most grim trip I've ever been on and probably some of those guys have been on. Um, you know, we ran out of food. It was freezing. It wasn't, you know, it would have been better if it was snowing or just not raining, but it was like we're in a constant cloud the whole time. I was in Simon's tent and he brought a single shelled tent, which is really good for dry winters and snow. But in Tassie, in wet conditions, it pretty much rains more inside the tent than outside the tent. Like every day there was just like pouring down rain inside. Like there was just so much condensation. Yeah, it was kind of... So you guys are just kind of like wet. We're wet the whole time. We're wet for 17 days. Sleeping bags, everything. Yeah. And, you know, that makes you super, super cold. But And because we had to carry so much gear, we had our dry gear, 
like one set of dry gear, one set of wet gear. And you went outside, you put on your wet boots, wet gear. On climbing day, you know, we're pouring boiling hot water into our boots to unfreeze them. Things like that. Leeches, you know, on your face, on your hands. Yeah. Um, I remember one of the guys, Miko, like we were hungry mm. and he'd be eating salt and pepper, just salt and pepper. Mm. That's it, because there's no food. So you just, just yeah. And like Simon Bishop ended up eating coffee grains. Um, and so, how many days in? And like, and there is no food. No, we had food, but we had to ration it. So about halfway ah, okay. through, we were supposed to be there for twelve days, I mm. think. Ended up being seventeen. And about halfway through, it's about within like a week, we realised we're getting satellite um, weather updates. So we were there for a week and we looked at the weather and we could see that we had a slither of a possible weather window right at the end. So we had to push everything and then there was like just food rationing going on. So no lunch pretty much for the last five days kind of thing. Okay. And well, how, how is the morale going through the group in those conditions? i tell you what, it's the best trip I've ever been on. Okay. And you know why? Because it was hilarious. It was so grim that everything was funny. You know, like there was no point complaining because that's what we were doing. We were there. Mm. And I remember my abs hurting when I'd gotten home from the trip because we'd laughed so much. Mm. It was a hilarious trip. You know, you just little things like Savo would play with the guy rope of the um tent and make music and you'd sit there laughing for you know half an hour at him and then you'd I think um Dan brought in a flute and you'd just walk off into the distance playing the flute into the mist you know you just we went mad yeah we actually went mad they achieved the objective yeah so we had this slither of a window um and we did achieve it we got it on day 15 I guess because it takes two days to walk out and yeah we did we woke up and it was a beautiful clear night the night before and everything frosted over and they got up and they did and they climbed it. I think it took them 13 hours from memory. Okay. Might be really wrong about that, but I think it was 13. They'd finished, they climbed Blade Ridge and they finished mm. around, I think it was 4 p.m. Mm. And then they could have probably stopped at that point and not done the next part of the climb up like the direct um, up the face, but they continued on and they finished in the night and they did it. <laughs> Yeah. And, and they were you there to take photos of them while they were doing it? Yeah. So Simon and I were sort of like on this other little pinnacle off to the side filming them. Um, there was another guy filming from the top. Yeah. Uh, Dan was filming from the top. So yeah, we did get, we got the climbing film and then we walked out. Yeah. Yep. And coming out of it, you feel it was a positive experience because yeah. I mean, if you if you pitched that to someone yeah. as a pos- do you want to go and do this? Yeah, someone would. I mean, the answer would probably be no from the majority of people. But you feel like it was a really worthwhile yeah. and valuable experience. It was. I think it's going to go down as one of the best trips I've ever done. Like, yeah. and it was the people. You know, those trips are made by the people you're with. Like. You can climb great things and be in a nice wilderness, but it's the people that you share those experiences with. That's mm. what lasts. And those bonds that you make last. So, yeah, good, funny people that can suffer <laughs> in happiness, in style. True. Yeah. So you're like really into the suffer fest now? I'm not, but I keep doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why. I think once you do something, you have to then up your... You know, you do the next thing, you do the next harder thing or you find something that's slightly more challenging because if you do something less challenging or less hard, it's you're not, not satisfied. Let's, I want to hear about 
your experience in Yosemite because I know oh, you climb yeah. the nose, right? Yeah, yeah. And not a lot of people get to climb the nose. And yeah. it seems like every I have every time I watch videos of people doing it, it seems really daunting. Um, and and I mean, especially for someone doing it the first time, like mm. a bit of an epic. How was it for you? It was good. <laughs> God, I want to hear more than that. Yeah. Um, the thing that so people can usually they're usually surprised. Like they'll look at my Instagram and they look at the photos and things, mm. and they think that I'm like this hardcore climber that climbs big grades and you know doing all these epic stuff. Um, and that you know I live for the mountains and I do like mm. I love the mountains, but like I didn't care about climbing the nose. No. I didn't know what it was. Even my friend suggested it and I'd heard of the nose and yeah. I knew it was a, a big climb. And then, you know, she was like, oh, I really want to do the nose. Come and train with me and see if we can do it. And at the time I was living in Natimark and I was working in town for the paper and I was like, all right, I'll quit my job as a photojournalist and I will pack everything up and we'll go to Squamish for two months to learn how to climb crack and granite and aid climb. And then we'll go to Yosemite and see if we can do the nose. But the entire time I was just more, I was more interested in learning how to aid climb. I was mm. more interested in learning another aspect of climbing. Mm. And the nose was just like this kind of bonus. I just, I really didn't. It was about the journey to get yeah, to Yeah, I didn't mind at all. And when I was doing it, I was like, this is cool. Like, and it was cool. Mm. It was really cool. I look back and go, I'm so glad I did that. Yeah. It's an epic journey. Um, but even when I was doing it, I was like, okay, this is cool. And after I did it, I was like, that's cool. But it was never much deeper than yeah. that. Same okay. as like things like someone recently told me um, they're a guide on Mount Spiring and there was this guy that had tried um, I think seven times and on his seventh attempt of Mount Spiring, he finally got to the summit. And when I did Mount Aspiring, I had no idea what it was and I'd never used crampons or an ice axe and we did it without ropes and I went up there with random people and I did Mount Aspiring and it was kind of an accident and people were like, oh, you've done Mount Aspiring. You're like, oh, I guess so. Like I don't have that kind of, I don't care about getting to the top yeah. or like completing really big hard climbs or climbing big grades. Yeah. So the nose was awesome and I highly recommend it. And if you can climb solid grade 18 on trad you can do the nose yeah. it's not yeah it is it's hard work mm. it's like physically mentally demanding mm -hmm. you know for four or five days um it's a hard job but i think you know you get so intimidated by things that once you're doing them you're like oh well it's a big thing but if you split it up into little pieces it's the same thing yeah so yeah that was my experience of the nose <laughs> And you, that's awesome. So it's just more about the journey than the journey, the journey, yeah. And the journey was going to Squamish in Canada, yeah. learning all those yeah. skills that you needed to get yeah. to pull together. Yeah. And that just came out of you saying yes to someone that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's a running theme of my life. I just go yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll try. Because why would you say happens. no? You know, like you live once. Mm. If something comes into your life. And it sounds kind of cool. I would rather say yes to everything and stuff up half of them than say no and think, wow, I could have done something really fun. Yeah. So, so while you're in North America, you get the opportunity to go to the Banff Film Festival for Winter on the Blade, which was that, that experience from down in, in Tasmania. Yeah. How did you end up there? Um, it's sort of a tricky story, but um, Simon Bischoff was in the States with us as well. Um, 
and he was actually supposed to go. Uh, it's his film. And um, he had a problem with his passport. It um, got damaged and so he couldn't fly over. Or he couldn't get over there quick enough. And I was like, well, stuff it. I'm going to take your place. Um, and I'm glad I... Did you I... tell him or did he offer? Well, he offered. He offered. <laughs> he offered a few of us. But yeah. um, I ended up going and... It was super awesome to watch mm. Winter on the Blade on this huge screen in front of all these people and I got to present it with Andy, um, I think, a few nights in a row. And um, it was a seriously awesome experience for the Banff Mountain Film Festival. It was like the Oscars, you know, of, 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 outdoor, of film. outdoor films. Yeah. Um, it was such a super awesome environment. Australia's got a cool outdoor scene like it's mm. awesome here but the scale of it over in canada over in the states it's just gigantic like climbing mountains it's just they live and breathe them it's such a big part of their lives because of the environment they're in like we don't have that here in australia so mm. it's different mm. um but yeah and seeing all the films and, and the talks and and all the presentations and then also you get to see the films but as a participant you also get to go into a room that has all the films that didn't make it and there are hundreds and hundreds of incredible outdoor films that we never get to see, which is super mm. sad. But, yeah, that was probably one of the highlights was just sitting there for hours going through awesome imagery, awesome stories. Yeah. Yeah. That we never get to see. It's so frustrating. You talk about um, Australia not really having that kind of mountaineering scene Um but we're not far from New Zealand, which you mm-hmm. do have this kind of ongoing relationship as well uh, with because I guess the mountains over there, right? And you went over there to climb Mount Aspiring. Um, how did you just kind of, was that another situation where someone suggested it and you just, you were like, yep, I'm, I'm on it. Yeah. Yep. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> I went over there just to, so after the Yosemite, I came back to Australia and then I instantly wanted to leave and go hang out and go climbing and you know all that stuff you know you always come back from a holiday and you want to go back to your holiday so that's Mm. what I did went to New Zealand um I've been there I'd already been there a few times like I go back there all the time it's like my second home and just rock climbed and actually got into sport climbing so sport climbed quite a lot the most I'd ever sport climbed ever in my life which was super fun actually because after doing the nose you got to think so much on the nose and you're using trad gear and it's so much more serious that to then <clears throat> go to New Zealand and just sport climb was mentally relieving. It was really good. But um, I was supposed to go into the Darrens and do like a big mission with someone and it fell through. And that person was like, oh, you should meet my friend Anna. She's into mountains and she works in Fjordland as a conservationist and she's like really psyched to do Mount Aspiring. You should go do that. And I just went, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, Mount Aspiring, that sounds impressive, you know, whatever. And met up at the cafe and they were like, oh, have you used crampons or an ice axe? Like, no, like I've snowboarded. I, I know what snow is. Um, <laughs> How did they respond to that? They were, well, they were like, oh, yeah, well, you've done the nose, so you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, which was silly in a way because like, climbing a big wall is different to mountaineering, whole other world, but, yeah. you know, they kind of, they weren't rock climbers, mm. so they kind of went, well, that's kind of big and scary, so this is big and scary. It's probably going to equate to a similar skill level or whatever. Maybe they saw that you had the mental grit. Maybe. To deal with it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. 
maybe. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, we packed our stuff and the next day we we're driving off yeah. to Mount Aspiring and I was with uh, Anna and her friend Alex who wanted to do it in a push as well, New Zealand style. So New Zealanders like Tasmanians. Just they want to do everything to extreme and they want to push hard and they're all super fit and have legs made of steel, um, which I don't. I'm not hardly any of those things, but I tend to hang out with New Zealanders and Tasmanians and yeah. But um, so we did it in a push and ended up climbing this thing. And when I got to the top, like we could see Mount Cook and all these other mountains and, um, you know, that's when it dawned on me that I was like proper mountaineering. And then I had crampons that didn't fit very well and I had only one ice axe and on the descent down from the summit I was like calling down to those guys because I was like guys I don't actually know how to down climb in crampons and I remember looking down and if I had a slip there I was like oh yeah this is it and they it's sort of that was probably the first time in my life that I went oh Olivia maybe you shouldn't say yes to everything all the time and maybe you should educate yourself a little bit about what you're getting yourself into um, cause I thought, oh, you know, this is one of those moments where an Australian falls off Mount Aspiring and they die and then it goes into the news and it's just another kind of one of those mountain accidents that mm. shouldn't have happened, but that person was silly enough to go up there without the skills. Mm. But so that I didn't felt happen, right? It didn't happen, but it was a good, um, moment of realization. Like yeah. it's like accidents do happen. And after doing Mount Aspiring, I then Googled Mount Aspiring and looked at all the stories attached to that mountain and there are heaps of accidents and deaths associated to that mountain especially with Australians because a lot of Australians go and do that as their first mountain um you know and I didn't even know what it was and I went and did it and I think if I hadn't known what I was doing I probably would have chosen otherwise Mm. so it was a good lesson to maybe Mm. for next time you know yeah. Think about it a little bit more because I'd gotten away with so many things. Yeah. And in that one moment when I was on the top, I was like, I might not get away with this one. Yeah. But I did. Yeah. And you come back at some point, you try and establish a women's climbing festival in the mm. Grampians. Well, yeah. What was the driver for that? Um, Going over to uh, Canada, the States, um, other places, I noticed that especially in Squamish, like the women there are just like their shoulders are out here and they're super strong and they're just crushing. And I was like, wow, like there are these women that are just dominating in the sport. And Australia, New Zealand, like, you know, we're kind of behind the times in a lot of things, you know, it just takes a bit longer for all these things to trickle down to to us. Um, we don't have those huge mountains or those big, huge splitter cracks or we don't have big walls. So the you know the climbers that come out of Australia are very different to the climbers in the states or Europe or whatever. Um, but I was just super inspired at seeing these really strong females climbing. That does happen in Australia, but there's kind of a handful. Mm. And um, I kind of wanted to create something in Australia like that. I wanted to change the environment. Um, and I guess the way I thought that I could change that would be through some kind of Uh, festival because Mm. then you could run workshops and Mm. you could educate people and you can Mm. bring uh, females together um, to support each other and build confidence in each other and go out and climb together. Mm. Um, I've spent most of my life climbing with guys and you kind of start to question that. It's same as like Federation Peak, um, Flinders Island, um, The Nose, everything that I've done 
up until sort of recently has been with guys and I just I it becomes a pattern and you're like why why am I just here with guys like I know there's women that can climb there's just less of them so I wanted to create an environment that you Mm. could get women together to meet each other Mm. and come together and help each other you know rise and become better climbers Mm. how did it go yeah it's still going yeah, it's still in the works. It's in the works. Um, so I got together with a chick called Joe who runs um, Women Uprising at North Walls mm-hmm. and she puts on workshops that are women-focused. And I sort of approached her because I couldn't do the job by myself. Putting a festival on is a huge task. And so we did get together and we were trying to go through a government grant and it, it didn't go through, um, mm. which is fine because we originally didn't want to go through a grant. We just started looking at ideas. Mm. Um, but she's now running, like, for example, this weekend right now to Rapalese, she's got a lead climbing uh, workshops for women running mm. uh, over the weekend. So there's small things going on. Um, I still would like to create something a little bit bigger. Yeah. 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 So it's still in the works. Um, I'm talking to a lot of people. I'm talking to climbing companies in the Grampians and Rapalies. I'm talking to climbers. I'm talking to gyms, talking to stores. So and watch I, this space. Watch yeah. this space. Um, you did win a grant though last year, uh, a women's adventure grant. Uh, so what was your pitch that, that won that? Because I'd spent so much time in Fjordland flying over it, photographing that book years and years ago, um, I had always wanted to walk Fjordland. Um, so people don't really walk f- through Fjordland because it's so steep and it's just it's glacier country, um, glaciated, huge glaciated U-shaped valleys, sheer. You know, you, it's it's the scale of Yosemite except with a ton of water. Um, it rains like eight meters a year there. Um, it's super wet, super vegetated. It's on the West coast. Like it's it, the weather that comes in there is just gnarly. Um, but I'd always wanted to walk those ridgelines. And so when I applied for the grant, I threw in this crazy idea of getting a bunch of chicks and going completely off track and doing like a huge ridgeline traverse or a first ascent. Um, it's not too hard to do a first ascent up there. Um, some of the peaks have been climbed or especially a climbing ascent. Um, you can easily put up a climbing ascent there, you know, 600 meter climbing ascent, whatever. Um, so I just threw in this idea and um, called up a couple of my Tasmanian friends, uh, Liz and Rosie, and was like, oh, well, you know, this is my idea. And would you do it if I won? Probably not going to win. They were like, yeah, cool. And then I called Anna, who I did Mount Aspiring with um, because she works in Fjordland as a conservationist. So she knew Fjordland really well and she was a mountain girl. And your same thing, oh, I'm probably not going to win, you know, but would you do it if we won? And we did want, we did win. So, yeah. Before you left for that expedition, you posted an answer on Instagram uh, that I want to put to you now. And that quest, it was an answer to a question. Um, why make an all-female adventure film? <clears throat> so why? Why not? <laughs> um, no. Okay. So I suppose when I look back to how I grew up. I grew up in a, a family that wasn't musical or outdoorish or anything. I had to discover this stuff by myself. Mm. Um, and I think when you don't have any mentors around you, like mm. I didn't have rock climbing parents or anything like that. They didn't surf. They didn't do anything like that. Um, 
you've got to find that stuff yourself. And then mm. where do you go? You go towards media, you go to magazines. Like as a young person, you might watch movies or mm. buy a snowboarding magazine or, or whatever. And I just found when I looked back at my life, I didn't have any of those things. I don't mm. remember reading any books or reading any magazines that had someone like me, mm. a female, doing the things that I wanted to do. There were always these big burly blokes and like surfing magazines, the typical one is the guys catching this huge wave and then there's an ad and there's a chick in a G-string bikini thing holding mm. the surfboard with the sun in her hair and mm. that's that's what you're told is that's your job as a woman. This mm. is what you're going to grow up to be. You're going to hold someone's mm. towel as they go surfing. Mm. And I don't want to live in that world. Mm. Like I wish that I'd grown up, you know, knowing about Lynn Hill I mean, I didn't, but, you know, there's other strong female climbers that uh, women mountaineers that I'd never heard of that I've only learned about now. Like they've always existed, but media has always focused on the male achievement. And I mean, I don't have children. I don't know if I'll have them, but I want, I don't want every other little girl to grow up thinking she's going to hold someone's towel. I want her to grow mm. up and go, I'm going to climb the biggest mountain I can find mm. and feel confident that she can do that. And the world will support her in that. So mm. Why make a female climbing film? Well, because I want younger women to see that and go, mm. oh, it, I can do that. Because mm. unless you see someone that you can relate to doing something mm. that you want to do, mm. quite often you don't feel like you can do that. And so you guys set out and your objective is to like climb a certain amount of peaks or to reach a certain point. What was the objective? Yeah, so Anna and I planned most of the trip yeah. um, because she'd... She spends time there and I knew the terrain pretty well. Yeah. Um, the idea was to, so if you're going to climb in New Zealand and find mm. really good rock, you'll go to the Darrens mm -hmm. um, and then that's probably where you'll stop. And then you've got the fjords that start and the landscape behind. Um, we wanted to go completely off track. So we decided we're going to go over Milford and or Milford Sound and go and do something further in. So we found a few peaks that we wanted to join together and mm -hmm. something that Anna had been looking at for a while. She wanted to traverse these peaks. Um, but because Liz and Rosie were rock climbers, I was like, well, we need to put a rock climbing element in there so they mm -hmm. want to do the trip. Anna was more like, oh, I just want to you know, race across the country. Um, she's a climber as well, but not mm -hmm. as much. She's more just a mountain goat. Um, so... It became sort of a, a traverse yeah. that we were doing from peaks called Terra Peak to Mount Danger to Lady of the Snows. It's about mm. 20 kilometers. Mm. Uh, so ridgeline, like full on just ridgeline traverse the entire way. Um, and there was one peak in particular. I was like, well, maybe we should try climbing this. And it's unofficially called the Tusk. Um, there was a guy called Hugh Willoughby who tried to climb it in the 70s. He used to do bird research in that region uh, on the Kakapo. And he one day went up and tried to solo it and he tragically fell. So no one knows if he ever made it <clears throat> or not. Um, so in between Terra Peak and da Mount Danger, I was like, well, hey, hey girls, there's um, this thing called the Tusk. We should try and aim to get there for base camp um, and see if you can climb it. Um, so we actually only ever got that far because the weather is so bad in New Zealand or yeah. in Fjordland. Um we knew when I was putting the uh, idea together, I knew that we would probably not be able to do the entire traverse just because of how Fjordland is. Like we went through two storms and we we're going to go through a third one if we stayed longer. Okay. Um, so 
the reason we got out in the end was because we had a forecast of 162 mil of rain in yeah. an evening, which is just insane. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, where we were camping, so our base camp, we were at a lake called Lake Liz and you've got this sort of cirque kind of headwall and it's something that we'd scrambled down to get to Lake Liz and when we went through Storm 2, that entire cirque was like this veil of waterfalls and the lake's rising. Like there's just... Fjordland is just water and stone and vegetation clinging on. So to stay in on a forecast of 162 mil and to then think you can do a ridgeline traverse, like continue on was really, really mm. foolish. So we did get out after 10 days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was like a, a, an ambitious attempt to climb the yeah. tusk to get the FA of the tusk. Yeah. Was it another suffer fest along the way? Ooh. It was a different type of suffer fest um, yeah. because we because we wanted to do the traverse and we knew mm. we would be in mm. for some bad weather mm. and that's just what happens in Fjordland. Mm. Like you'll maybe get three or four days mm. and then you're going to go through a storm. Um, so day two, we knew we would be in 50 mil of rain and so we'd started out, we'd gotten across the fjord, We'd camped one night and then we had this hike up this huge spur mm. to get up mm. to the tops. And only maybe five people have ever done this walk mm. and you're literally like, it's vertical, like you're pulling on plants, overhanging flax, tussock. Um, if you let go, that's it. Um, it was vertical. And scrambling. you're roped up or? You're not roped up. You can't rope up. There's just It's just jungle and it's vertical and you, we're just doing this for, you know, hours and hours and hours to get up this spur. Um, super slippery. Um, yeah, pretty horrendous. So yeah. it's kind of free soloing um, vegetation, yeah, to get to the tops. But basically we're going up this spur and we needed, we knew we had this really bad forecast of 50 mil of rain and we couldn't get stuck on the spur. So in one spot, for example, it was probably maybe 10 meters across and then it just mm. dropped down into the valleys, like sheer drops. So you don't want to be there in 50 mil of rain and winds. Um, we eventually did get to a flatter part of the spur, which was almost at the tops and we made camp. And that night was probably one of the worst nights I think any of us have been through. Um, so we settled in for the night and by midnight, we're all awake because this wind has just picked up. And we, we thought, we knew the rain was coming, but we didn't realize the wind was what was going to get us. And uh, you could hear, you've got these huge headwalls and you could just hear this wind like roaring. It sounds like, you know, a million trains coming towards you and it would hit the tents and our tent poles snapped. And this is day two. Our tent poles snapped, like the, the um, cords snapped, guy ropes are flying off. We're sitting in like puddles this deep. And so like to try and repin the guy, guy lines is impossible because we've lost all our pegs. We're using ice axes to keep stuff down and ropes. Um, at one point, um, yeah, so Anna and uh, Liz were sharing a tent. And at one point, Anna got out to fix a guy line and she was explaining that the tent lifted up, like, you know, sort of with Liz in it. And it looked like the tent was going to fly off this spur and Anna had to get back in so that, you know, because Liz is quite small. And to help weigh it to down. To help weigh it down. And so we spent from 12 o'clock to 8 o'clock, all of us, we had two different tents and we're just doing this, keeping it up. For so no sleep. Hours. No sleep. Like exhausting. Uh, Rosie ended up putting on her helmet in the tent because the wind was so violent that she just got sick of like being hit in the head. Getting smacked in the head yeah. by the tent. Yeah. It was so, 
I can't remember what your original question was, but um, it was was it a suffer fest? And I oh think yeah, the resounding yeah, yeah, answer yeah, is yeah. yes. Yeah, it was a so. suffer fest. But, <laughs> and you that know, was the second day into ten days. That was days. the second day. Um, you know, and everything got wet, but we knew we were getting a really nice three days after that. Okay. So yeah, the sun came out in the morning, and we dried everything off. Um, sleeping bags, everything, yeah. you know, and then scrambled up a little bit higher to the point where we wanted to start our traverse yeah. and camped again. And then we had this incredible day to get to Lake Lears, which was 12 hours of walking along like, and, you know, the rock changed from really hard granite to choss piles that were just falling to pieces. But, you know, there were mm. knife edge and you're just walking along just like all oh, both sides and you've got the west, co- you know, you've got the sea right there. So you've got the west coast. And, but both sides are just sheer drops and we had to repel a couple of times. Um, no one had walked where we walked, so there was no beta. We had, you know, we had maps, but it was like you'd kind of look and go, well, that looks good, let's go that way. You, you just know? Have, use your judgment. Use your judgment. And, you know, little things like we ended up making two repels. Um, you know, in this one section it was super blocky and chossy and we'd forgotten the 12 meters of tat that I'd bought and put it in the heli drop that was coming later. We had a heli drop halfway through the trip on day okay. five. So we need more, we needed more gear. Um, so I, I brought, I'd bought 12 meters of tat that we could use if we needed to repel and leave and leave stuff. Um, so we'd forgotten that. And so all of a sudden we're in a situation where we have to repel and <laughs> listen, Rosie made this anchor that was, uh, my prusik, I think on this horn and the top of it had like this crack running around. It was kind of moving, but the bottom bit was okay. And then like a backup cam that was like good for an outward pull. And that's what we wrapped off because that was all we could find. Yeah. And it was, that's, but that was the mission, you know, like we had no other options and no beta and we wanted to get to Lake Liz to do this traverse Mm. that no one had done. And so, you know, things like that. And, like Willie's had to down climb some stuff. Like she's the, she was the stronger climber. So we'd set up, uh, you know, an abseil. We'd all go down and then, you know, someone has to down climb because you don't want to leave your anchor. And yeah. so we'd maybe put a piece or two in and then Liz would kind of down climb this sketchy sort of slab. And yeah, it was pretty exciting. But what was the mood like? I mean, did you feel like you were taking big risks? It felt... I think we were all capable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we all had to dig a little bit deep at times. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think we're all uncomfortable in certain times. Like, for example, um, during that part of the traverse, uh, one of the girls accidentally dropped, like kicked a huge, only just tapped at mm. this rock, a huge rock though, and only just mm. tapped it with her foot and it went flying down. And we're all walking separately at this time because mm. rocks are falling, so we don't want to you know, drop rocks on each other. And this huge rock fell and Rosie was below and it went hurtling towards her. But she looked up and had the sun in her eyes and couldn't actually see where this rock was coming from and kind of jumped out of the way and then another rock went flying. And things like that would happen where it was just like, oh, that could have been really bad because if you fall off here, you fall forever. Yeah. Um, learning to trust um, vegetation, learning to trust to pull on tussock and be completely okay with that. Like it felt like ice climbing on vegetation a lot of the time and slab, like you were kind of like mixed climbing on rock and then pulling on all these plants and you're like, is that 
bit of moss okay and you make these really weird techniques like mm. there was the prong which is things like this you put into the into the moss and then twist <laughs> and it would work and you just like do that or you, there's certain plants that you knew were really bad and they'd come out of the rock really easily yeah so, so you got to learn like what was yeah what, what would deep root itself and what was good to pull on and what yeah wasn't. yeah so yeah. it was all kind of sketchy all the time yeah. but controlled sketch yeah okay controlled sketch controlled yeah. sketch so did you guys finish the uh, traverse or did you get up the tusk in the end uh so we didn't finish the traverse um, there was never a high likelihood of that. Uh, we would have liked to, um, but we did climb the tusk. So we did have a 162 mil forecast of rain come in at about day eight um, via satellite. And that kind of rain is not what you want to experience anywhere, let alone Fjordland. Uh, mm. You can literally get washed off the mountain or blown mm. off the mountain or you know, the lakes rise or waterfalls pop out of nowhere. Um, but we did also have news via satellite that we had this one stellar day of climbing before that that forecast. And it was for Bluebird Day, perfect conditions. Yeah, girls, we're going we're gonna to climb the tusk. Um, so we go to bed and everyone gets ready and they've packed their bags and, you know, we've got to have this beautiful Bluebird Day. And in the morning we all wake up and it is so windy that you cannot walk out of your tent. Like you could not stand in this wind. Um, as Liz put it, you know, she tried to take a pee in the bushes and she's like, you need to sit in the tussock so that you don't pee all over yourself because the wind is just where we were camped. It was this huge cirque, this huge head wall and the wind would just come in and it mm. just like churned. Mm. Um so, yeah, we were in this situation where we'd walked all the way to the Tusk and we've been staring at it, waiting for a good climbing day and we got this beautiful bluebird day but it was so windy and we're flying out pretty much the next day. Um, so we had a big discussion and the, the cutoff time was 1 o'clock for them to start climbing. So this climb ended up being 600 metres. Um, no one had climbed what they were climbing it was probably going to be a mixture of vegetation, um, chossy, bad rock that did break off in parts. And the descent off the back was slightly overhanging, chossy, falling apart, quite a big descent. Mm. Um, so the cutoff was one o'clock, um, two o'clock came around and the wind had died down just enough that they went, all right, let's go for it. So they started climbing. An hour late. An hour late. It was after two o'clock that they started a 600-meter climb that no one had ever done before, um, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Like you go to a Rapleys and you're like, oh, it's two o'clock. Should we start a multi-pitch, you know? Um, they're in the middle of nowhere, super remote place, and Liz and Rosie, they did it. They were absolute legends and they did it. Um, so this 600-meter climb, um, they ended up – uh, pitching out probably four pitches on yeah. the whole thing. The rest of it they soloed. <laughs> um, mostly because the rock was so bad that there's no point placing gear and yeah. the rock was falling apart. Um, parts of it, there was like one section where it was a grassy, tusky kind of vertical ledge which they could solo. Um, and I think by the time they got to the summit, they were having so much fun soloing that they just finished it. Anyway. So they got to the summit soloing. Um, their descent was 
you know, they'd gotten there just on sort of sunset. Yeah. And their descent did involve, you know, wrapping off some pretty dodgy boulders. Um, you know, they had to like rope up for a traverse and it was pretty trossy and they're kind of doing it going into darkness. But um, it was a legendary effort from them too. And that's what you get with Tassie climbers. Yeah. That's why that team was made of Anna from Fjordland and then two Tasmanian climbers that can handle runouts and, yeah. you know, all that kind of jazz that Tassie climbing provides you with. Yeah. So, yeah, they did and they called it Kagapo's Crest. Um, they graded at 16, so the bottom pitches are about a 16. Okay. Um, but, yeah, you know, it wasn't the hardest climb, but it was sketchy in that even if it's a grade 10, whatever, if your hold breaks and you're 500 metres above, you know, the next ledge, it's the same outcome. So they did super well. Yeah. Yeah. And is it on film? Will we get to see it? Ah, you'll have to see. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, we did. um, So Simon... We can't have too many many stories break, yeah? No. But um, the coolest thing was that trip or one of the coolest things is that Simon Bishop had taken me on all these adventures Mm. and I'd learnt so much through doing that. And finally, I got to get him to come onto my adventure. So he shot drone for me on that. Yeah. And... It was like the perfect um, thank you present to him. Like you get to do this now. So it was cool to work together, but the other way around. So what does the future hold for you? I mean, are you uh, (laughs) you going to keep saying yes to to everything? Where is that going to take you? Um, Currently, I'm still saying yes to everything. Uh, I might be... Okay, so Nepal might be on the cards. Um, So I'm the Arcteryx ambassador, one mm-hmm. of, um, there's an, another ambassador called Dom who's a mountaineer and he's a New Zealander and he guides um, places like uh, Denali, I'm a Dublin, um, Everest and he's uh, another person that I've met in my life who's shown up with an opportunity to go and climb something big. So that is sitting back there mm. in my mind. Um, I may or may not do that. Um but honestly, I do want to get a festival going. I do want to make sure that women's workshops are happening, mm. climbing workshops. Um, I'm currently training to be a guide uh, out here at Arapiles. Um I would love to share my um, love for trad climbing with especially other women. Um, I've been trying to climb with more females lately just mm. because. Um, and I'd love to see, you know, just women come out of the gym mm. and go into trad climbing in mm. places like the Grampians and Arapley. So it's still a pretty passionate thing for me. Um, change is definitely happening, but I'd like to be part of it or at least be part of, um, you know, making it a quicker. Accelerating it. Accelerating it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Being a catalyst for that change. Yeah. If, if, yeah, if possible. I mean, I just don't want to, you know, look back, you know, in 40 years and be like, oh, you know, there was all this momentum and something could have been done or we could have tried a bit harder. I think right now is the time to really push um, women into sport and equality on all sides. Um, I think it will benefit the entire community. It's not about excluding men or saying that men are shit or men are, you know, dominating or whatever. I think it's um, we're all human Mm. and if we can lift each other, then that's the end game.
That's It Australia. I'm eager to see what's in store for Olivia in the future and her upcoming film that will be released on the expedition to the Fiordland in New Zealand. You can follow her story and get updates on her website and socials, which of course I've linked to, if you don't remember it by now, you should, thelayback.com. Thanks to all of you for listening and for the continued feedback on the podcast. The Layback Podcast is powered by the psych and hearing from listeners always helps keep up the stoke, gets those episodes coming out faster. So wherever you're headed today, may the stoke be high, may the coffee be strong and may people stop asking you about whether or not you've seen that film with that guy, uh, you know, that climbs that cliff in that place, you know, the one without the rope. Do you do that? To take us out, here's an excerpt from Winter on the Blade of Mark Savage playing tunes uh, on a tent guy rope to keep everyone amused during the bad weather that they experienced uh, while trying to climb Federation Peak in Tasmania. Amazing what can entertain a person. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> <laughs> Like one more than me. <laughs> <laughs> How good's life? <laughs>